everybody and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic creative side of the tracks from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host. Um, I missed an episode last week, it's something that I don't do very often. I like to get the podcast out every week, it's fun to make, it gives me some routine and I love talking about video games. Uh, but last week I was actually on holiday, away from home, out of the country. Um, I went to visit the UK to visit some family and then for a little holiday in Dublin where I've never been before to visit a few friends there and I just found myself swept up in holidaying in a different atmosphere I was doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of relaxing, not playing any games at all it's very rare for me to not at least be tinkering with something but it felt healthy and right to just take a little step back and do something else for that little little break Uh, but I'm really happy to be back now Um, I have picked up a few games since I returned to Iceland, where we have some beautiful summer weather, just to do the traditional Reykjavik weather report. And I have a really interesting game to talk about today. I'm going to talk about the Reverse City Builder by Free Lives, with an ecological emphasis, uh, Terra Nil. Um, This is a game that has been in development for quite a while. It's been delayed a couple times. It's been on my radar for a long time. I was very transfixed by the whole concept of it, about a building game where you don't expand endlessly, where you try and return nature to the ideal state, and then you pack down all of your machinery and you get out of there. Um, it's It's a wonderful concept. I love to see games with an ecological emphasis, and this one is really something. Um, It's not without its flaws, but it was a really good time to play it, and I'm excited to talk about it with you today. Um, A couple of other games have crossed the radar since then. Uh, While I was away, a couple of good games came out. Uh, Tron Identity is now out by Bithel Games. I've added that one to my playlist. It's a visual novel based on the Tron universe. Um, I love Tron. I remember watching it back in the day when it first came out. Very striking, old-school 80s. Um, going into the virtual space of the 80s imagination kind of universe. So I'm excited to pick that one up. I like Bithel games. I've enjoyed Thomas Was Alone. I've enjoyed Subsurface Circular. Always got a bit of time for what Bithel games is putting out. Um, So I'll be playing that one, I think, this weekend. Apparently it's quite short, just a couple of hours. Also got a code for The Last Worker, another really interesting looking game by Wolf and Wood. I've added that one to the playlist. And remaining on the playlist are Storyteller, have a Nice Death and Pronti. So loads of indie games stacked up for the coming episodes. Um, a really nice playlist. I feel like we're in the midst of a somewhat classic um, year for indie games so far with all of the great games that have come out. And we have quite a few more coming. Um, maybe not indie, but we have the Horizon Forbidden West uh, DLC coming up this month. We are closing in on Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Um, I've watched a couple of trailers for that now. I had been avoiding them. Um, but I was watching the Min-Max show, which I watch every week, and watching a bit of Easy Allies and catching up on what I missed while I was away, uh, the Kyle Bosman channel, things like that. And it was hard to miss people talking about the trailer. Um, So I ended up watching it, and I have to say, it blew me away. It really did. Um, I think the early trailers showed off a little bit of what is new about Tears of the Kingdom, the Sky Islands, diving down from cloud level to ground level. Um, And it looks fun. Um, but there was also a lot of smacking bow goblins with sticks, um, seeing the familiar enemies from Breath of the Wild and so forth. And 
And so even though Breath of the Wild is easily my favorite game ever, I would say, um, I was thinking, this looks a lot like Breath of the Wild. I wonder what is new here. Um, and we got to see that in the recent gameplay trailer and the last uh, sort of cinematic trailer. It looks like they've really accentuated the sandboxy elements of the game. You can combine things to make weapons that are interesting. You can make machines that look very eccentric and full of possibility. Um, Nintendo have been putting that front and center when they talk about the game. They've been saying, we can't wait to see you express your creativity in this game, um, which is really fun and an interesting thing for a Zelda game to take. You know, Zelda games have traditionally been quite linear. Um, you get items, you beat bosses, you get new items that allow you to travel further than you could before and to access new areas like bombs and gloves to pull up rocks. Um, and you carry out a story. It's like a little action-adventure baby RPG, at least the 2D ones. Breath of the Wild, of course, changed that with the open world, but this one seems to be changing some of the fundamentals. It, it's an open-world sandbox. Um, we have seen a little bit of story. We've seen the return of Ganondorf. Um, it's a prequel to Breath of the Wild, so it's the fall of Hyrule, uh, which is really interesting. Um, we've seen NPC characters fighting alongside Link, uh, which is really interesting too. We've seen Link ferrying people around in horse carts and that kind of thing. So there is a lot to look forward to in Tears of the Kingdom. And my hype level is just, you know, my hype meter has burst um, through the top end. Um, I'm very, very excited for this game now. I, I always was, but but now I'm really, really stoked for it. I have to say as well, the art style just looks wonderful. Um, I really like the design in Breath of the Wild, the costume design the weapon design, the insignias and the carvings that you see, um, the, the clothing. It's also pristine and wonderful, well put together and smart um, and sleek. It's something that people don't talk about that much with Breath of the Wild, but the design, the visual design is really phenomenal. And it looks like they've pushed that level up again. Like everyone looks so cool in this game, such cool shapes and colors and insignias and design. So yeah, Tears of the Kingdom is coming. Um, I'll be talking about it more on this podcast. I think it's the kind of game that just swallows up your gaming time. And so I've been thinking, how am I going to keep a weekly podcast going um, whilst only playing Tears of the Kingdom, presumably, which is just what I assume is going to happen. Um, but I've been chatting to a few friends. I've been chatting to friends of the show, Kieran Daly, and I've been chatting to friend of the show, Adam, who used to run Switch Indie Fix. Um, and they are like in an equal state of hype to me. So Perhaps I will have a couple of guests on throughout that Tears of the Kingdom release month, um, talk about the, the games they've played so far this year, and talk about Tears of the Kingdom. Maybe that's the way that this podcast will handle that huge monumental game that is coming our way. There are some other games coming out in April too. There's quite a stacked schedule. Um, I'm going to run through a couple of those. Um, it is now the 15th, so on the 12th, the Ghostwire Tokyo, which I covered on the show last year upon its PlayStation release, has come to Game Pass. So I think a lot of Xbox people are going to be looking forward to that one coming. It's published by Bethesda. It's by Tango, who had a lot of success earlier this year with Hi-Fi Rush. And that one is now out on Game Pass. It's a good time. I enjoyed the relaxing open world clearing that it lets you do. It's very much a map marker game set in an empty Tokyo that is uh, in an eternal night with these ghosts wandering around. It has combat and exploration. Um, it was a really nice map-clearing game, so that one's out on Game Pass now. Um, a, an intriguing-looking card game called Wild Frost came out by a couple of developers, Will Lewis and Gazita, uh, published by Chucklefish. That one's out on Switch and PC. It's a party-based deck battler, but rather than the usual turn-based system of deck builders, this one has an action element too, with timers ticking down. 
I have heard some people saying that it's got a um, difficulty ramping issue, but it looks great. I'm interested in Wild Frost. On the 19th, less than a week away, Horizon Burning Shores is coming out. It's the DLC for Forbidden West, which was in my Games of the Year top 10 last year. I think I'm firmly on the record as being a huge admirer of the Horizon universe. I was thinking about Horizon today, actually, because whilst writing about Terra Nil, um, I was thinking about how so many post-apocalyptic games are just caked in misery. Like, you know, the Fallouts and the Last of Uses and the Mad Maxes, all of these uh, dystopian visions of the future. Horizon actually isn't like that. There is a terraforming element to the story. There is uh, more going on in Horizon than meets the eye for a post-apocalyptic game. And I think that note of optimism is perhaps one of the reasons that I like it so much. Um, So I will for sure be jumping directly into Burning Shores which takes the game to the LA cityscape. So that's just going to be spectacular. I can't wait. There are new uh, machines to fight and new story elements too. Um, There is a game coming out on the 20th called Tin Hearts by a developer called Rogue Sun. That one is coming out as a Switch exclusive on the 20th, followed by a PC Xbox um, on May 16th. Um, It looks like an interesting one. It's like a 3D lemmings-y game. So you have this little train of tin soldiers that you have to get from A to B. Also with a little bit of Tinykin vibes. It's like a giant house. And a little bit of Moss, the VR game, where you have like a ghostly hand that you use to change the environment so that your little mouse guy can uh, run from A to B. Um, So that's an interesting looking one. It's an interesting concept. Uh, Tin Hearts is coming out on the 20th. Um, Same day, Coffee Talk Episode 2 is coming out. That's that really fun visual novel where you're making hot drinks for characters um, whilst they tell you their stories and you can give them advice and so forth. It's a very relaxing game and really nicely written, so I'm really glad that Coffee Talk has another episode coming up. On the 21st, Advance Wars 1 and 2 are coming out after the long delay due to the Ukraine war, which is still going on, uh, but Nintendo seemed to have decided that it's okay to put that out now. Um, It's the classic tile-based strategy game with red versus blue. I was an original Advance Wars player, and so I will try that one at some point. With such a stacked month, I'm not sure if I will pick it up upon release, but I am going to play it sooner or later. Um, A game that I talked about in my indie preview for this year is going into early access or public beta or whatever they're calling it. This is the voxel open world detective noir game with immersive sim elements where you're running around a city trying to track down clues, trying to put them all together, uh, taking on cases. It's had some nice early notices. So if you're on PC, check out Shadows of Doubt. It looks really good. On the 25th, Strayed Lights is coming out by Embers. It's a combat-based 3D action-adventure kind of game. It looks very combat-focused. You're dodging, you're dashing, you're countering, striking. Um, It looks very fluid and fast and tricky. Um, And it has a a really lovely colour palette that reminded me of games like Fea and Scourgebringer. It's that neon, and Sayonara Wild Hearts, actually. It's that neon purple, blue, pink colour palette. Always catches the eye. Um, Kind of futuristic and 80s at the same time. Um, That's Strayed Lights. On the 27th, The Last Case of Benedict Fox is coming out. This is an interesting-looking indie game. It's coming out for Xbox and PC. It's a 2.5D Lovecraftian Metroidvania uh, with combat, puzzles, exploration. Um, There are some nice trailers for that one. Um, I'm always a bit of a sucker for a good Metroidvania, and I love Lovecraftian stuff too with uh, monsters beyond the veil and uh, cults and mystery and all of that Lovecraft stuff. Um, So that one's on the 27th. And finally, on the 28th, a big game, Star Wars Jedi Survivor by Respawn. 
It's coming out on next-gen consoles. Looks very glossy. It's the Jedi Fallen Order sequel. I have watched a couple of previews for that one. Um, there's some interesting stuff in there. Something that was missing from the original that is a highlight of any Star Wars movie is a town. You know, like on Tatooine when they go to the, uh, the desert town and there are aliens clumping around, Imperial soldiers everywhere. Um, those kind of things are a keystone of Star Wars in some ways. And there wasn't a town in the first one. You went from level to level. Um, but there is a town in this one that's going to act as a hub. And some of the footage looks just wonderful, exploring the buildings, talking to people, uh, bringing the Star Wars universe to life in a way that seems true to the movies. Um, from what I've heard, you can also find people out in the world. Um, you travel between planets on your ship and then go to different levels that have combat, Metroidvania, base attacks, all of that stuff. The original had a bit of a Dark Souls-y influence that I didn't quite like. I'm curious to see if that is still in there. Um, but the Force skills look amazing. And apparently you can meet people out in the levels and take them back to the hub, which then expands the, the amount of stuff that you can do there. Um, that's a big improvement too. I think one of my big critiques of Fallen Order was the, um, the upgrade system. It wasn't great. Um, a lot of the things that you find were cosmetics that didn't seem to really change how your character looked at all. It was almost like they had planned for microtransactions, and so the game was all set up for this this kind of vibe, and then pulled it out. Um, so I'm not quite sure what happened with Fallen Order, but it looks like that side of things is going to be much improved. Um, so I'm very curious about Star Wars Jedi Survivor. I will watch the reviews, and who knows, I might just pick that one up. Um, and traditionally, I have kept this running list of games that I'm interested in with dates in just an, an, a messy Apple note that is missing half of the info. Like I have to go and Google all of the games to find out who the developer and publisher are, release dates, double check everything. Um, but we started doing this collectively in uh, the Gaming in the Wild Discord. Um, I started a spreadsheet that contains all of that info and opened it up to the patrons of the show. And so people have been using the spreadsheet and punching in games that they are interested in too. So it's not just my personal list this time. It's a little bit of a group effort. So thanks very much to Narita Boy, who has been punching some games in there, and anyone else who has been using that in the Discord. I like that we have this uh, collective preview of the games that are coming now. It opens things up a little bit. We're sharing information and passing on good trailers that we've caught here and there. Um, and I will mention as well, before we get into that Terra Nil review, this is a patron-supported show. Um, the Discord has been really, really fun lately. We've had um, a bracket challenge uh, run by Dovetail True, who set up all of these face-offs between classic characters, like who would win between Jesse Faden and Lara Croft, who would win between Bayonetta and Kirby. And it led to some really, really funny matchups. We all voted on who would go through. Uh, we got to the finale just yesterday, and it turned out that it was Bayonetta versus Amaterasu from Okami. And Amaterasu, I think, was a bit of an underdog going into that fight. <laughs> I voted Bayonetta. Um, Amaterasu came out on top. It was really, really fun. It was a really good time. So thanks to Dovetail for doing that. Uh, we also have channels for word games. We're playing all kinds of word games now. Wordle, Quordle, Word Apply, and sharing our scores. Uh, we have game channels for Chia, Dredge, all kinds of things. Um, you're welcome to come and join the Patreon Discord and support this podcast. You can do so at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. Um, you also get access to a bunch of patron-only episodes. I'm going to make a new one soon about my travels in Dublin and all of the sights and sounds and things that I saw, um, some music and that kind of thing, like a different kind of podcast, a bit more personal. Um, they seem to be going down well, so you get access to 10 of those if you become a patron. I will leave a link to that in the description. 
Also, a shout out to the newest patron of the show, Eric. Thanks very much for joining up. And also, returning patron, Adam. It's lovely to see someone come back. Occasionally, people drop out of the Patreon for, you know, personal reasons, whatever. It's really nice to see people come back if they're still listening to the podcast and their situation has changed, their circumstances have changed. So thanks very much to Adam. Thanks very much to Eric. And now, on with the show, with that review of Terra Nil. So Terra Nil is by South African developer Free Lives, uh, published by the ever-reliable Devolver Digital. Um, the short pitch of the game is that it's a time-based strategy about terraforming, um, but there is more to it than that. Um, Free Lives, interestingly, have made a bunch of games before. They made Genital Jousting, um, a game about jousting with genitals. They made Anger Foot, um, a first-person game in which you kick everything in a place called Shit City. And they made Broforce, which is one of the most off-putting, wince-inducing game, game titles that I can think of. So it's fair to say they've had a bit of an edgelord-adjacent um, vibe to date, um, which makes it all the more interesting that now they've made Terra Nil, which is a, a conceptually sophisticated, emotional, and even visionary game. Um, I can't help wondering what prompted that shift. It's such a uh, curveball for them. Um, I was thinking, like, this is the kind of game that someone makes if they've maybe like had kids and they're thinking about the future of the planet or maybe it was just a personal like what is it that I'm putting out into the world moment well who knows maybe they just wanted to make something tonally different and they will revert to form it's just really interesting that this game was made by by free lives with the catalog that they've put out to date um, it came out on PC Android and iOS um, and iOS and Android are via Netflix so if you have an iPad uh, you can play this game for free. You just find it in the App Store, download it, check into Netflix as you open the game, um, and you can play. I played it on the iPad. It was wonderful on a touch screen. Um, it would be great on a mouse as well. Um, it's one of those games that needs touch or mouse. Um, I imagine that there will be console versions to follow, and I'm interested to see what they do with the UI. It's always a bit of a challenge for cursor-based games. Um, Metacritic has this one at 81 for PC, 86 for iOS, um, How Long to Beat has the story at four hours, extras for seven, and completionists for nine. I've played it for around 10 hours, and I have not been a completionist, so maybe that speaks to me having a few travails as I went through it, or taking my time, or maybe just leaving the app open, who knows. Um, and the developers describe it as an intricate environmental strategy game about transforming a barren wasteland into a thriving, balanced ecosystem. Bring back life to a lifeless world by purifying soil, cleaning oceans, planting trees, and reintroducing wildlife, and then leave without a trace. And I say about this one, Terra Nil is a relaxing, at times taxing, terraforming game about repairing the ecosystem of a decimated world and then cleaning up after yourself and just leaving. It has a few flaws, but they are nothing next to the profound, philosophically important, and surprisingly emotional overall experience. Um, so I have some big words about this one. I have some big thoughts about this one. Um, I will stand by them and, and I will get to them. Um, but I think let's start with some, some of the basics. Terranil is a top-down isometric game, and I think that it will look familiar to anyone that has played any of the Command and Conquer games. Um, some of the interface stuff is also similar to things like Populous from back in the day, um, a little bit like SimCity, where you're planting down installations 
um, on tiled spaces, that kind of thing. Um, so strategy game people, I think, will um, be familiar at least with the basic mechanics of the game, which is using menus to select buildings that you put down that then have effects on the area around them and that kind of thing. And the game begins when a ship comes down from space. You see the planet, you click on an area. There are four areas to choose from. The first one is called the Flooded Valley. You click on that, you get an animation of your ship going in through the atmosphere. It goes down to that wasted landscape where you begin. It lands and then it vanishes. So for a while, you are stranded there. You're gonna use the resources that made up that ship to create machinery. This is a currency, um, it's leaves here. You get more of them as you progress through the game and that allows you to build more stuff. Um, there are difficulty levels, I will say, for full disclosure, I played on the easy modes, um, which meant that I never really ran out of currency, but there were still lots of problems and puzzles for me to solve anyway. Um, so I think that if you play on the medium or harder modes, you will have a harder time um, and you'll have to think more strategically, perhaps build less installations than I used. It might be a slightly different experience, but the easy mode was really fun. I don't feel like I missed out on anything. I got through the game. It was still challenging at times, just solving the puzzles um, and figuring out what building does what, what affects the temperature, what affects the humidity. Um, there's a lot to remember and a lot to get into as the different uh, facilities and installations that you can use start to open up. And the game has quite a gentle tutorial. It doesn't hold your hand all the way through it, but it does a great job of explaining the basics. Um, you start off with just a couple of machines that you can build. The first one is a, a wind power generator, a turbine, which can only be placed on rocks. Um, and rocks are not all over the map, so there are only a few places that you can plant a turbine. Um, the turbine will have a sphere of influence around it where you can put things and they will have power. Um, the next building that you get is a toxin scrubber. This is a little red factory that will clean an area of the dust in this barren dust bowl and turn it into rich brown soil um, that looks ready to grow. Um, you will next get irrigators. This is a, a water tank that sends out a huge sloshing jet of water in the directions that you choose um, and that will restore grassland. So you start to see greenery appearing. So all of these things have an area as you are selecting them in a menu, moving them around on the, the tiles to see where you want to place them. You can see where they are going to have an effect. You can place them um, at a suitable distance from each other to sort of maximize their influence. Um, and so you're expanding throughout this realm, throughout this landscape, uh, putting down turbines, putting down toxin scrubbers, which also clean water from muddy, uh, polluted water into beautiful blue water. Um, and you're starting to get grass. And as you do this, the humidity in the atmosphere is increasing. There are little meters at the top right for temperature, humidity, and some other attributes of the, uh, the troposphere. Um, and it's very gentle. It's very nice to play. Um, you are not under a huge amount of pressure playing this game. It is relaxing. And as you start to get some initial successes, new things will unlock. So after you've achieved a certain amount of humidity in the atmosphere, by having more plants and having more vegetation. Um, this little gauge where your, your meter is for your current task in the top left of the screen will smash with a satisfying pop. Um, a new machinery will be revealed in your menu. For example, a beehive, you can drop that onto a tree and it will expand the kinds of greenery and the biodiversity in its sphere of influence, make other plants grow. Um, there is an excavator that you can use to create irrigation ditches. There is a water pump that you can use to fill them with a big slosh of water to create rivers. 
um, an arboretum that will launch out seeds and you'll start to get more trees. And so you start to see the, the landscape coming to life. Even within the first 10 minutes of playing, uh, bit by bit, you are unlocking the tools that you will need to change not only the topography of this world, but the atmosphere, uh, the troposphere, the amount of moisture in the air, the amount of uh, bees that are around pollinating plants and making other plants grow. Um, and you start to see the effects of your work quite quickly. As the humidity and the temperature rise, you'll start to see wildlife appearing and new plants that weren't expected, uh, moss creeping over the naked rocks, all of that kind of thing, birds flying across the sky, and significantly weather. The weather will start to change. Um, and I remember this distinctly as I was playing this game. I was just going about my business, starting to make things green, starting to make things beautiful. And it felt great. I felt like tingly. It was so satisfying somehow. Um, and after some initial successes, getting rid of all the, the dryness and the stillness, suddenly there was this loud thunderclap, really loud. I was shocked and I, I kind of sat up in my chair um, and a huge deluge of rain started to fall over the landscape, um, covering the rest of this dirt desert with greenery. Um, the music swelled and suddenly, quite unexpectedly, I just found myself with tears rolling down my face. It really hit me in a big way. And I think there are a few reasons for that. This isn't the kind of game you expect to have that kind of effect. It's not a dramatic story with love and loss and deaths and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I was thinking about why. Why am I feeling this way? Why is this game affecting me so much? Um, and I think that it was an unexpected outlet for a lot of pent-up climate angst and ecological despair that I think a lot of people feel as we read the news every day about, you know, the ongoing mass extinction of animal species, the the site of the dying Great Barrier Reef going grey, industrial expansion, deforestation, extreme weather, all of that kind of stuff, everything that's happening, all of the news that we get, it's a lot to cope with for all of us, I think, and it kind of has this level of hopelessness um, of actually having an effect on it, even if you vote right, even if you recycle and do all of the individual things that we can do. I think climate anxiety is real. And another aspect of it is that we're all part of the problem as we use power. It's just painful. And for some reason, this moment in the game, the thunderclap, the rainfall, just brought it all to the surface. And I felt like it's a little flicker of something, a little flicker of hope, I guess. Um, and not only because of the tech utopian idea of using machines to change the world for the better, um, but that someone had thought to make this game. Um, it's really human will to change how we operate, to change our systems, to change how we produce power, to curtail industry, to think more about things. And the political will hasn't been there. So in some ways, it's a human problem. Um, at first, we perhaps weren't aware of it. Now we are. And yet still, the will is not there to change it. Um, so I think I was just moved by the existence of Terranil at all. To get back to the game, um, this first phase is pretty familiar. It is pretty expansionist. You are growing your influence as you tend to in strategy games. You're covering the play area with a power grid. You're using your machines to hit goals, to rejuvenate soil, to encourage plant life. There are optional goals that offer some deeper mechanics. Um, if you can make the planet hot enough and influence the climate, you will see tropical plants blooming. If you make it cold enough, you will see arctic plants and wildlife. 
Um, and you get new machine, machines that let you do different things. You get desalinators for the ocean. You get uh, research facilities. You get an animal observatory. Um, and so after you have created these biomes um, and fulfilled some of these environmental goals, um, the next phase is about scanning for wildlife. It's about seeing the wildlife return. Um, and I would say that this is maybe the least satisfying phase of the game. Um, you get clues for each animal that are contextual. For example, um, scan on a beach near an estuary. Um, but I found that as I was scanning for animals using these clues, um, if I scan an area that seems to be by a beach to me and is near an estuary, um, the game would not read it as such and it would say, no, there's no beach in that area. Um, and so I found it a little frustrating trying to untangle these contextual clues and find the right spot on the map. But you only need um, a minimum of three animals to complete the level. There are usually six or seven to find, each with their own clues. Um, you kind of get a graded system of clues, like if you fulfilled one criteria of being near a waterfall, but not the other, then you have to find a waterfall that is near, for example, a lagoon, and then perhaps you will find salmon or something like that. Um, salmon will appear jumping up the waterfall. You can zoom in and out on this game. I played almost the entire game zoomed out. But when you zoom in, you can see the animals. You see detail. You see the flowers growing. You see the uh, the insects in the air. So it is very nice to just take a moment sometimes and zoom in on this game. Um, after you complete levels, you can literally just spend time looking at it, which is a really nice touch. Um, but as for the animal collecting, or the animal scanning rather... Um, I think I perhaps didn't read well enough that this is a distinct phase of the game, because there are several phases. There's the building, the power, the expansion, um, fulfilling different biospheres, fulfilling different cues, optional missions. And then you flip to this kind of cleanup phase where you take all of the machines down. Um, but the animal phase was folded in with that. So as I was taking down my machines, I was scanning for animals, not finding them, getting frustrated. And I realized, I think, on maybe the third biome that this phase is supposed to be an additional phase of terraforming. So if there is not a beach near a waterfall, then you can terraform that to be the case. Um, it felt a little odd to me because having restored this beautiful wilderness, you then have to start tinkering with it um, and sort of destroying things to make animals appear in a way that felt counterintuitive to me. For example, I was looking for one um, animal that the only clue was it's in a big lake. None of my lakes were big enough. Uh, but I used some detonators and diggers to enlarge a lake artificially, and then I found the animal, but it didn't feel quite as clean as the rest of the game to me, um, changing um, the engineering. It was like a, an engineering change to the planet. In a different way, sort of a different vibe to everything else that I'd been doing, it felt a little more intrusive and intentional than um, sort of creating conditions for nature to flourish to then go into that nature and start dissecting it to make certain things happen. I don't know, maybe that's just me. And maybe I just missed um, an instruction panel and clicked through too fast. But um, the animal spotting uh, section of the game was my least favourite, and I was always relieved when it was over. But next comes the final phase of each cleanup. Um, after the animal spotting, you have to you have to do your your cleanup, your packing down of all of your stuff, which is both slightly tedious and deeply satisfying in several different ways. Um, you can place recyclers that have a wide radius um, all around the map. They will deconstruct all of the buildings in their their radius, and they will suck up all of the metal, all of the glass, all of the wiring. 
um, you then have to create a, a different kind of infrastructure to empty the recyclers by sending vehicles to them. Um, so it's an extra phase of design, um, and it makes you think of the map in a different way. Um, and how you recycle changes from area to area. In River Valley, you have to create a network of waterways using this digger machine um, that hovercrafts can then use to reach the recyclers. If there are waterfalls, then you have to build little lifts that the hovercrafts can go up to reach the recycler. Um, on another level, it's a monorail that you have to create um, that you can use for different things, but also for the pack down. Um, and it is a whole other kind of puzzle packed into the level. Um, and it made me um, think differently about what I was doing. I think once you realize in the building phase, you are going to have to get rid of all this stuff. You think a little more intentionally in where you place things. So you're bearing the, the end life of each uh, structure and each facility in mind as you are building. Um, and this is another aspect of the game that I think was really resonant and really philosophically important uh, when it comes to you know modern life because product end life is another big topic um you know single use plastics things that we use and throw away on mass like uh, white goods washing machines freezers furniture um there's been a bit of an awakening on this i think photographs of you know town sized piles of uh, disused washing machines and things like that landfills plastic islands out in the ocean and we are starting to think about consumption differently but product end life isn't quite there yet there's more emphasis on making something good uh, not enough emphasis on what happens to it at the end like how do we disassemble it how do we dispose of it um, so there's a lot of factories just pouring goods into the world that are going to end up buried or um, in the sea or whatever um, and it's just startling and mind-blowing to think about all of this stuff so the fact that this game has an end life section where you take down all of the buildings, you use all of those materials to reconstitute your ship, um, and then you take off and leave this untouched wilderness is, well, untouched in inverted commas because it's been quite touched quite a lot by human hands to bring it back, but there is no trace left, there are no remnants um, as your ship takes off and the words Wasteland Reclaimed appear on the screen. You pick up your little hovercraft as the very last thing and your ship leaves, and then you are given the moment to uh, enjoy what you've created or to move on to the next level. It's very effective, very beautiful, um, and I, I really enjoyed that part of the game. And if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you might have heard me say before that I think that video games have a resource problem. Um, many, many games, even gentle, thoughtful games, the one that springs to mind for me is Spiritfarer, in which you sail around the world. It's a very gentle game. You grow things, you cultivate, you help souls to die and move on. It's a sad, beautiful game. And you find yourself on all of these beautiful islands where almost the first thing that you will do is like hack down every tree that you can see in order to get different kinds of wood to Im improve your ship. Um, and this this felt so wrong to me, even playing Spiritfarer. It was such a bum note in the game. And it's not just Spiritfarer. Um, video games have a huge problem of encouraging players to see the world as a resource um, in a way that I guess fits in with the, the philosophy of the last century. Uh, we decimate the natural world in order to make things, in order to get things, animal skins, whatever, uh, mining and quarrying, all of that kind of stuff. It, it makes me uncomfortable to carry out those in-game actions in that same mindless spirit. 
Like, um, why not not cut down the, the forest? What if I could just find another way, leave an undisturbed forest and find a different way to improve my ship? Um, it's never an option, really. Um, and there's a feeling that every gemstone you see in a game perhaps shouldn't be broken off and used. Perhaps every rock shouldn't be smashed. Perhaps every flower shouldn't be picked and every animal shouldn't be hunted. And all of this is incentivized in gameplay in a, a way that feels like it belongs to an attitude of the past to me in some way. Um, and there is a philosophical shift where you can think about inaction and respect for the natural world as the best thing to do, the best course of action. And that was present in Terra Nil, and it was such a relief to me um, as I cleaned up after myself, as I solved each environmental puzzle, as I left. I didn't cut down anything, I didn't hunt anything. It, it made my heart sing, honestly. It's an experience that I've wanted. I feel like this is a game that I've been waiting for. Um, and in that way, I think that this is an inf important game. It's not just good. I mean, sometimes it's not even good. There are moments where I was just deeply frustrated by the gameplay. Um, I did enjoy the overall experience, but there were frustrating moments. But I think it's an important game in a really rare way. It's a, a philosophically important game. It changes the, the video game vernacular that we are so used to. The, the very basics of every game is resource collection in so many games. And to have a game that just thinks entirely differently about what you were doing um, is, is just a huge relief. And I feel thankful that this game was made um, it did have an effect on me. I will be thinking about it. I will not forget playing this game. Um, it's It contains that attitude that we just don't see. It's forward thinking in a way that many games are not. They are locked in dogma. And not just games, but culture more widely are locked in a dogma that has gotten us into this position. And so just seeing this forward-looking, different thinking in a game um, was pr profound. It really was. Um, I do feel that it's necessary, though, to mention that there is like a, a fantasy element to all of this, that repairing a biosphere and bringing about new weather systems. Um, can't be done in half an hour, of course, but after so much dystopian culture, after so much time spent in Last of Us and Fallout, picking through the ruins of society, like the post-atomic ruins, the post-pandemic ruins, it's just a relief to see any utopian vision at all. So to run through some of the good and bad things about Terra Nil, I mean, obviously, I'm very in love with the overall concept, the next level tech utopian thinking. It feels visionary, it feels necessary, it feels important. Um, I would say that this is one of the most philosophically important games that I've ever played. Um, there are some great moments in the game when you get first rainfall, when you see weather changing, um, when you see animals returning to the wilderness. It's, it's lovely. I won't spoil specifics later in the game. That was just one of the first ones. Um, I always try and make a spoiler-free podcast, and I hope that you don't feel that I went too far in this one. I've only really talked about River Valley. Um, I will also say that the systems interlock quite nicely. Um, it's intuitive. It is well tutorialized. It looks great. Um, the soundtrack is absolutely gorgeous. I've been really enjoying listening to it. Um, the sound itself, the foley sound, is gorgeous. The water, the leaves, wind, the buzzing of insects, all of these sound layering over each other as you go from a desolate, um, soundless, windswept plain to a bustling uh, living forest again. 
um, is just beautiful. Very well put together game. Um, there are only four levels, but each of them is distinct. I will say that you have to employ very different strategies and new machines in each level. The way that you generate power might change. The way that you use what is in the land might change. Um, the things that you have to do might change. You might have to pay more attention to the sea, um, other things that you weren't expecting. Um, and then the pack down is always different. So there is a huge amount of variety packed into those four levels. Um, there is also end game content if you're 100% a level, which is attainable if you're willing to go through the, uh, the animal spotting phase and do additional terraforming, uh, which can be a little troublesome as described. Um, there is plenty of life in this game. I think that if you do find it relaxing and you do enjoy 100%ing, this is a game that could have quite a long lifespan. As for the bad stuff, I will say um, sometimes the, the structures that you build can look a little similar. Like um, if there are three different buildings that look like sort of slight towers um, with a little bit of glass and quite grey. Um, I ha had trouble learning them all um, quite so well in such a short time. And I would find myself a little lost sometimes and think, okay, so I have to raise the humidity. How did I do that again? I can't quite remember the chain of events that led to me raising the humidity because I've been working within different systems for foliage and for cleaning and for um, desalination and for all of these different things. And they all have little knock-on effects on the world. So I did find myself getting a little lost within the systems um, at times. Um, it is quite a simple game in some ways. It doesn't go, you know, uh, neck deep into systems, but even the familiarity uh, with the different structures, I think they could have looked different. They could have had different colours if they were attached to different effects in the world. If they were yellow, if they were attached to raising the temperature, if they were blue, things like that. Um, they're all a little bit grey and similar looking, so sometimes I didn't know what to build and I ended up just building a lot of stuff um, just to see if I could find the effect that I want, and then remembering in the end what I had done to it originally raise the humidity. So yeah, a little lost in the system sometimes. Um, there is also a try to fail or like um, a fail to learn sort of system here. Um, you can soft lock yourself. You can soft lock yourself in all of the levels in an interesting variety of ways. Um, in the jungle level, you have to shade trees to make them grow and not be burned by the sun. Um, you can only build those on cliffs. I ran out of cliffs and I kind of wrongly positioned my tree shaders. Um, I had loads of resources, but nowhere to build uh, what I needed to build. Um, I kind of messed up somehow. Um, and so I was soft locked, I think, twice in that level and had to restart it. Um, it felt bad at the time, but I think that this is part of the game. Um, I was playing on the easy mode, so I wasn't running out of resources and having to start again and again and again, which is perhaps the experience you have. Um, if you play on higher difficulties. So I find myself hitting these brick walls and having to just leave the level and start all over again. Didn't feel great, um, but I think that that is part of the game and it was just part of my experience, the way that I played it, that it didn't feel good to me. Um, the animal scanning, of course, the clues are bad. Um, that whole part of the game doesn't feel good. The UI, um, for once in the game, doesn't feel good there. It's like you have to do one or two taps too many to actually scan. Um, it's not quite as well tutorialized as the rest of the game. I think that the importance of it as a phase of the game wasn't emphasized enough to the point where it was lost in the weeds for me a little, that I should be paying more attention to this animal section of the game. Uh, perhaps that's down to me not internalizing the instructions enough, but that whole section of the game felt real bad to me, actually. It's, um, it's a bit of a miss. And I was about 70% of the way through the game, but at the time I realized that you have to do additional terraforming to create the conditions, not just expect to find them 
in the natural world. So I missed a step there, and it took a a late game realization for me to realize exactly what I was doing wrong, you know, for the first five or six hours of the game. But that's it for the downsides. And just to finish, I think I will say that this is a visionary game. Um, it might seem like a small strategy game, and it is, but there is something about the the thinking that underlies the, the very base concepts of this game that was just very inspiring to me. Um, I'm grateful for this game. I think it's one of the more important games that I have played especially in the, the bold thinking that it takes to create a reverse city builder at all. Um, the thinking that goes into the, the lack of resource gathering um, and actually packing down, um, minimizing your impact. It's just not something that I have seen in games before. So a big thank you to Free Lives for making it. Um, this is a really impactful, important game. I'm grateful that it exists. That is Terra Nil. So that was my review of Terra Nil. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope I didn't get too preachy in there for you. Um, whenever you talk about environments, whenever you talk about humanity in those big sweeping terms, I think it can come off like a certain way. Um, I tried to make this podcast a relaxing space, an apolitical space largely, even though I guess my opinions and my feelings on things do uh, sneak through. Um, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe it's fine to put a bit of yourself into these things. But yeah, loads more to come. Um, I am going to start playing, I think, Tron Identity, maybe right after I finish this podcast. It's quite sunny outside there, so maybe a walk, and maybe then some Tron Identity later on. Also Storyteller, all of those indie games that I've mentioned that I have stacked up at the moment. Um, I guess next week Horizon is coming out, so that's going to dominate my playtime. Um, I'm not sure how long the DLC will be. I will say, though, that um, the last... Frozen Wilds DLC for Horizon Zero Dawn was actually a huge chunk of game. It was actually some of the best Horizon gameplay and some of the best dialogue and story in the entire series. So Burning Shores could be quite substantial, um, but I will be talking about that one for sure. Maybe that will be next week's episode. Maybe it will be one of those indie games. Um, I hope you will come along for the ride. And in the meantime, please do come and find me on Twitter at Gaming in the Wild, Instagram, and YouTube, if you are watching on YouTube, then thank you. Please like and subscribe, as they like to say. Um, please do share the podcast with a friend. Please do retweet it. It's always good to get more more people listening, especially this episode. This was an important one to me. Um, so take care of yourselves and each other. I'll be back next week, and bye-bye for now.